Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you and only you. God, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You are the shalom for the broken. You are a place of home for the lonely. You are hope for every sinner. You alone know the areas of our lives that need to be addressed. You know the areas that need to be restoried or restored or even deconstructed in order to be rebuilt. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do all of that work today. Speak prophetically and powerfully to our hearts and minds through the scripture so that we leave this place different than the way we walked in. And God, may your word be a welcome disruption to our personal agendas. And may your word be a divine comfort for our longing hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 31. If you don't know where Exodus is, it's after Genesis. Second book of the Bible. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 this morning. Uh, I'm going to prep you. We're going to read it twice. So some of you guys are ready for the thanks be to God right after, but just, just chill. We're going to read through it a couple times. So starting in verse 1 of Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for, for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Let's read that once more. The Lord said to Moses, See... I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for every setting, and in carving wood, and to work in every craft. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we just read is probably not the text you were expecting to be the capstone of a series like this. To say that this is obscure is, is probably an understatement. I don't know why God's wired me like this. I love reading his word, and I get caught out by these things that often get overlooked and unseen because even inside of them there's great beauty that we often miss. And so I'm incredibly excited to introduce you not just to this dude named Bezalel, but to introduce you to God in the first place. Because I think we have an understanding of God. Like I've heard somebody say, um, everyone is a theologian. If, if theology is the, the thoughts we have about God, the words we use to communicate God, everyone's a theologian. The problem is some people are just really bad theologians. 
Some of us have really bad understanding of who God is, or we've crafted a God that's made in our image. And so this text, I hope to dispel some of that in each one of our hearts. Our text is pregnant with some biblically significant words, some biblically significant realities. What we just read twice uh, was that God calls, God fills with his spirit, and then God even commissions individuals to join him in his redemptive work on the earth. We should just stop right now and, and invite the worship team back up. Because everything I just read is worthy of praise to a God who calls, who fills, and who then commissions broken, flawed people to join him in his restoration of all things. But before we even get into any of those words, we have to acknowledge the word that precedes all of the others. The first thing that comes out of God's mouth here is the word see. And he doesn't use that how we tend to use it in our culture. Like when we're trying to make a point or as a transitionary statement, like, see, what I meant was, He's saying, see, it's an invitation, and even some uh, would interpret this as a command to see what he's doing. And church, this is where we have to start, because if, if we don't get this, if we don't pause here and posture ourselves to see who God is and what God is doing, then nothing I say beyond this point matters. If our eyes are not opened to and attuned to who God is and what he's doing, then at best, we're navigating our lives from a posture of presumption. Presuming to know where God is or what God wants or what God is doing, but in reality, we're fumbling through life with self-inflicted self blindness trying to convince other people that we really see. And our version of faith is not placing our hope or faith in what we know God is doing, we're placing bets on what we hope he's doing. This word see is inviting us to pause because it is impossible for us to faithfully join God in what he's doing if we are spiritually blind, if we are spiritually aware to who he is and what he's doing. From Genesis to Revelation, whenever God is moving amongst a people, the first thing he wants for them is to open their eyes to see what he's doing to possess a spiritual awareness of his presence and power at work. And this is not just unique to this one isolated story in the book of Exodus. This happens over and over again, but what, one of the, the, the places where I love this happens is in the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. However you say it, doesn't matter. We can call him Habby for short, that's fine. Habakkuk is a prophet who has this burden by God. He, he's called to be a prophet at a gnarly time in history when God is going to use some of the most wicked people in the world to bring about divine justice and righteousness. And this is how God preps Habakkuk to see this. He, he makes this simple plea in Habakkuk 1.5. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. Church, let us hear the word of God. When we open our eyes to see what he's doing, our souls are awakened to a wonder that expresses itself in worship. So beloved people of God, if your wonder has grown stale, if your worship has been silent, could it be because you've closed your eyes to God?
Could it be that your gaze is distracted by other lesser things? As we come to a text, we come to a text where where the God of all things is imploring us as his creation to stop and see him, to stop and see what he's doing. And so I know this is going to be weird for you, but I want to do just that. Because my heart is grieved for all the times that we've walked through life or walked through scripture or walked through even these worship services with our eyes closed to God and what he's doing. So we're going to stop and just pray another moment and we're going to ask. I'm going to pray this on my behalf, on your behalf. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and whatever resonates with you, man, offer it up to God in your heart. Make these petitions yours. God, what are you doing? Open my eyes to see what you're doing around me and in me. God, open my eyes to truly see others and not just myself. Show me, God, where I'm blind to your presence and your working. Father, how often are you at work and I just don't see it? Will you hear my prayer and train my eyes to see you? Amen. Churches, we pause and ponder this idea of sight, of seeing God. I I was reading scripture, and I came across Mark 10, and I I want us to be like blind Bartimaeus. You can read the story in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, but I'm going to do a simple retelling of it. Bartimaeus was a blind man who, as he sat by the road, he, he hears a crowd walk by. He hears dozens of footsteps. And among the clamor, he hears that Jesus is in the crowd. And as soon as he hears that Jesus is in the crowd, he begins to scream at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Over and over. And those who were in the crowd came and they tried to to silence him, to shut him up, but that made him cry out even louder for Jesus to hear him and see him. And that's when Jesus stops the crowd and Jesus invites this man close. And verse 50 of Mark chapter 10 says that Bartimaeus stood up and threw aside his cloak and he came to Jesus. That cloak was the thing that he used to hide behind. It was that thing that helped him take comfort in his blindness. And he cast it aside and he ran to Jesus. And Jesus said, Bart, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, let me recover my sight. This is the request of a man who once saw. He said, I want to recover. Who once saw. And he says, I want to see again, but my eyes are closed. He came to Jesus knowing what he needed from Jesus. He needed his eyes opened. And so Jesus opens the eyes of Bartimaeus, and we read that from that day onward, he begins to follow Jesus with eyes open and affixed to the the living God in front of him who works and walks along the way. Church, may we be like Bartimaeus this morning. God's first word to the Israelites in Exodus 31, to a people who are walking through the desert looking for a place to dwell, is the same word to us as well today. See. 
open your eyes to who I am and what I'm doing. And if like Bartimaeus, you've lost your sight or you just can't see who God is or what he's doing today, don't overcomplicate this. Cry out to Jesus and say, God, I want to see. That's our first point. As verse 2 continues, God pulls back the curtain on what he wants us to see. He wants us to see that he calls people by name. Verse 2, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. We've got to pause on the profundity of that idea for just a second. Called by name. That word called in Hebrew, it means to be chosen for a divine purpose. It's the same word that's repeatedly used in Genesis chapter 1 to describe the creation process. Where we read that God called the light day. God called the expanse heaven. God called the dry land earth. And right here in this moment of Exodus 31, the same God who called creation into being is now calling Bezalel by name, designating him for divine purpose of building the tabernacle. God calls this man to construct a space where others can come and experience the presence of God. And this is the the unfurling fulfillment of God's oft-repeated desire in the book of Exodus. Before he wants his people to dwell, he says, I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell among you and be your God. I want you to dwell with me so you can learn what it means to faithfully dwell. A few of those instances are in Exodus 25 and in Exodus 28 where God says, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 28, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God has had this unfurling divine purpose. And to accomplish this purpose of creating a space where people can experience him, where where they can dwell or he can dwell in their presence and there could be a visible manifestation of God's presence with his people, God calls people according to his divine purpose to join him in what he's doing. He calls Bezalel. And yet again, I I think this this should spur us or stir us to radical worship of God. That God calls and uses broken, sinful people. But maybe you're sitting there and you're going, okay, but who's Bezalel? Like, why should I care about Bezalel? Well, God introduces us to him by name. He says he's the son of Uri and the son of Hur. What's really cool is that Bezalel means shadow. His dad's name, Uri, means like the light. And so when he was born, he became the shadow that stood in the light or created a shadow. And then we get to Hur. The only other time that her, uh, a her is mentioned is earlier in the book of Exodus when the Israelites are at war with the Amalekites. Do you guys remember this story? The Amalekites confront the Israelites <clears throat> and a battle ensues. Joshua, who's like Moses' right-hand man, he's the Dwight Schrute to Moses' Michael Scott, okay? He's the commander of the armies, and so he's sent out. 
And as they engage in battle, he's engaged in a physical battle. Moses is engaged in a spiritual battle. And every time he lifts his hands while holding the rod, the Israelites begin to win the battle. But every time Moses' hands get tired, his arms get tired, and he lowers them, they give up ground in the fight. And so at that moment, Aaron, who's the high priest, and her, who before this moment is not really mentioned at all, they come together, they sit Moses on a rock, and they say, let us hold your arms, and one holds the right, one holds the left, so that God's people can win. Ultimately, the Israelites win the battle And the her that we're introduced to there in that story is the her that is the grandfather of Bezalel. And I love that though God gives his lineage, God doesn't say, that's why I chose you. God doesn't choose him because of his cultural upbringing or the advantages and privileges afforded to him because of who his grandfather was. The reason why God chose Bezalel, and if you're sitting there wondering why did he choose Bezalel, the answer is, I don't know. And I find great delight in that. It is delightful to my soul that there's no qualifying reason given in Scripture for why God chose and called Bezalel. The Bible never once says that it's because of his talent or his potential or due to being anything special. And this reveals something consistent with God's character throughout all of Scripture, that when God calls and when God chooses, he doesn't look at resumes or pedigrees. God does not get caught up in applying the same criteria which we tend to exclusively rely on. We are taught to take the world's metrics and try to apply them to the kingdom of God. But that's not the way of God. Instead of looking at outward appearance, instead of looking at external accolades, the metric by which God chooses and God calls and assigns value, God looks upon the heart. Or if I can put it in the way I learned growing up, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so here we meet a man, and the first thing that God says is, I want you to see something. He says, in the same way that I called Light, day, and darkness, night. In the same way that I call sinners out of darkness and the dominion of sin into my marvelous light is the same way I call and repurpose people to join me in what what I'm doing in the world. God still calls today. God is calling people even in this moment to come out of the cave, to walk out of the tomb into new life and join him in his redemptive work in the world. And so there are two implications What this idea of calling means if you're not a Christian, it means that God is calling you by name to himself today. He's calling you to repentance and faith. I'm pretty sure that you're in this space today because you've been searching for something and the things that you've been searching for haven't satisfied that internal, eternal longing that you experience. There's an emptiness. So you've turned to things that are incapable of doing what you hope that they do, and so now you find yourself in this space, hearing about a God who sees you, a God who's calling you to himself so that you can know love and know him in truth. And if that's you today, then please hear me. The God who created you 
is the same God who died on the cross for your sins. And he is the same God who is calling you by name to know him, to know his love for you, and to trust in him for salvation. To follow him and find rest for your weary soul. And so I'm going to give a little teaser. As we come to the communion table today at the end of our sermon, at the end of our time in God's word, I'm going to ask you to come find myself or Pastor Rich, who will probably be in the back. And we want to introduce you to God. If you've never put your faith in him, but you're stirred, you're like, man, I, I want my eyes to be open. Come find us. We'll pray with you. We'll talk about what this means. And you'll walk out of here like Bartimaeus, no longer blind, but seeing and following Jesus who gives light and life. Now, what this means if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who has been called by God by name, that means you've been redeemed and made alive in Christ. <clears throat> So you've already been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are already forgiven and freed from the dominion and power of sin. You are sons and daughters of God. You have been saved, but hear me on this, please. The calling that you receive to salvation is also a call to serve. In Jesus, we are not just forgiven by God. We're also commissioned by God to partner with him in pushing back the darkness of the world. And we do that by bringing the message of the gospel which liberates those in captivity to sin. And we do that by placing ourselves along the marginalized and the oppressed so that we can execute righteousness on their behalf and stand against tyrannies of injustice with them. That is the ministry that God has entrusted us to steward. That is the ministry that God has invited us to open our eyes and see. Second Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself and has given to us, entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Church, if we are going to be a faithful presence in this city, we need to remember who we are. We have been called by God, made alive in Christ by his death and resurrection. And God has called us to, like our boy Bezalel, God has called us to cultivate spaces where others can experience the presence of God. And so we preach, and so we place ourselves in spaces where we can embody the words and the ways of Jesus to a world that is watching us. God's first word was, I want you to see. Secondly, he calls us to join him in his work. And then we get to verse 3, which for me is where this starts to get really good. God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. The Pentecostal me comes out, so I'm like, I have filled him with the Holy Spirit. And if you're super Pentecostal, the Holy Ghost This is crazy. The very first time that this ever happens to anyone in the Bible, where God fills somebody with his spirit, it happens here with Bezalel. God doesn't fill Adam, the first man. 
He doesn't feel Enoch who walked with God and, and was righteous and walked with God and then God just took him. He didn't even die. He just like goes and bees in the presence of God. God didn't feel Noah or Abraham. He didn't feel Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or Aaron or Joshua, not even Grandpa Her. It's lowly, unknown Bezalel. God calls a relative nobody and fills him with his Holy Spirit and then entrusts him to construct an environment where other humans can experience God's presence for the first time since the Garden of Eden. And I love this. So if you're familiar with the Exodus story, once the tabernacle's built, God fills it with his presence, right? But before God fills the place, God fills the man. We get so caught up in places, but we forget about people. Please hear me in this. God doesn't care about places. God cares about people. And we even apply that to New Testament. Paul, at one point, he goes, I want to go into Bithynia. And God, through the Holy Spirit, goes, no, I want you to go over to this, these people. Paul says, I have in mind a place. I have a heart for a place. And God goes, but I'm sending you to a people. One of the greatest things that happens in our life, alluding to what Pastor Rich said even during announcements or what I called the pre-sermon, is one of the greatest things God can do for us is tell us no. But we don't like to hear no. We should. Because it means when God tells us no, it means we're following a God who we haven't constructed in our own image. Because the God that I've constructed in my own image will not tell me no. So for the first time, since the Garden of Eden, God fills a man and says, I want you to create a space where people can experience me. And if you read in verses 3 and 4, it says, God fills him with the Spirit so that he can devise and work and build. God fills him, empowers him with the Spirit so that he can accomplish what God has called him to do. Another way of saying that is that Bezalel's ability, his skill, his gifting, all of that was insufficient to accomplish the work of God. And perhaps that's a humbling word that needs to rest on some of us this morning. Everything that we are in our flesh, our ability, our skill, all of that is insufficient to accomplish any work of God. For us to do what God's called us to do, for us to be who God has called us to be. We need to be people who are filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need God's power. Zechariah chapter four, verse six. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If we fast forward in history a little bit, <clears throat> There's a temple that is built. Solomon builds it. And then the nations are ransacked. The temple is destroyed. And Zerubbabel is one of the ones who goes back to rebuild the temple. And it's sitting before them, a massive pile of rubble. And he and those with him are overwhelmed. And so God speaks a word to him and says, the way you're going to rebuild this place, the, re the way you're going to rebuild this environment where people can come and meet with me, experience me, is not by what you have to offer. It's not by your own power or might or ability. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then the follow-up verse, which I have not included for you because I'm going off the rails, is that it says, And who are you, O mountain, before Zerubbabel? 
You shall become a plain, and this will happen with shouts of grace, grace to it. What God called him to do required the power of the Holy Spirit. What seemed like a mountain in front of him was insurmountable in his own flesh. And so God says, I will overcome that by my grace evident in your life. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Zechariah 4.6. I grew up in a Calvary Chapel system. This was just like our verse. It was like written on, on hands, on refrigerators, mugs. High schoolers when I was a youth pastor wrote it on their shoes. Like it was a thing. I don't know how you feel about any of that, but man, maybe you should. Like, write it on your hand, write it on your mirror in the morning. Maybe recite it to yourself as you step out of bed each day. So that whatever God has placed before you, what God has indeed entrusted to you and called you to, You begin to walk in it for his glory, knowing that it's not going to be accomplished by any conventional resources of human might or ability. It will only be accomplished by an outpouring, a filling of God's Holy Spirit. And I've been thinking about that verse as it relates to our dwell series. For weeks now, you've seen the words dwell and enduring in faithful presence. Now, the idea of that should be that as God's people, we are first learning to dwell in God's presence, which will then enable us and empower us to faithfully dwell in this city. Because church, if we're not consistently pursuing God's presence, we're going to end up relying on our own power, our own proficiency. And when that happens, and what no one talks about is that When we end up relying on ourselves and not God, we end up with results that we are capable of and not results that God is capable of. I was talking about this sermon with my grandpa, whom I will from this point on introduce you to as Pop. My Pop has been a a pastor for like 40-something years and gifted with a prophetic voice and a a pastor's heart. And so I'm walking through some of what I'm thinking about this sermon, secretly taking notes because everything he says is gold. And we got to this part about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden his heart just broke. His countenance changed. And he said this with a broken heart, and I copied it down so that I can quote him on the screen because I want to introduce you to my pop. He said, Eric, 80% of the church would continue on as normal. Because we know how to do church, but we do it in the flesh, and we don't do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are not the idle words of just some elderly man who's given us his thoughts on life. This is the assessment of a pastor with decades of experience who's echoing the words of other men and women of God who've gone before him. He's saying that the church in America is proficient enough to do church on our own without God. And by and large, we've either accepted that as the standard or we have proved of it by our silence. Human proficiency has supplanted the Holy Spirit's empowering. And that begs the question, is that the way God designed his church to be? Is it pleasing to God for those who identify as his people to be so focused on ourselves and our own proficiency that we've functionally divorced ourselves from his presence. 
I'm going to say the answer is no. Because in the book of Acts, we read that what brought the church to life, what turned the world upside down through God's people, they waited on him in the upper room. They spent time in prayer, and it was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work that turned the world upside down. And so, church, what will bring life to our beings, what will bring life to this church and even life through this church is a reliance upon the presence and power and filling of the Holy Spirit rather than our proficiency. Because hear me, self-focused is never spirit-filled. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. All right, so we've simply followed the text in Exodus 31. See, I have called a man named Bezalel, the the son of Uri, the son of Hur, And I filled him with my spirit. Then we read on and it says, I've also filled him with wisdom, intelligence. Wisdom and intelligence are those things that are drawn from the well of God's character and applied to daily life. With knowledge that is aware of God's leading and direction. All of this God has done to verse 4 so that Bezalel can devise and work. That word devise means to imagine. Our final word that we see in our text this morning is to imagine. In large pockets of our culture and even into adulthood, imagination and creativity have been dismissed as childish or childlike qualities that, that we should eventually grow out of. But biblically, we see that imagination is a God-given gift that enhances every area of our life. It's meant to enhance our work, our friendships, our romantic relationships, our hobbies, our parenting, our anything else I forgot to say. All things, imagination has been given to us to enhance those areas of life. And if you look at our text, God calls Bezalel to use his imagination in ways that'll create space where others can encounter the living God. But look at the order of those words, devise and work. Imagination precedes the work, not the other way around. It's usually not how we operate though, right? We take steps to work and then we're like, God, I hope, I want the imagination. And so we're like that guy who's like, you know, trying to like, um, like place steps in front of us as we walk. It looks uncomfortable, it's awkward, it's not really efficient to get around. Bezalel is called by God to imagine before he works. To sit with God and dream and pray about what's possible comes before we take any steps. That's God's divine prescription for his people. To both enjoy success in building the kingdom and to truly enjoy him in every aspect of life. God gives his Holy Spirit. God gives gifts of wisdom and intelligence so that we step out in faith to serve him with that holy imagination for what's possible. I'm gonna credit Pastor Rich for introducing that phrase to our church because I I hadn't really heard it before him. Holy imagination. That's an idea, it's a phrase, it's a practice that's been germinating and bearing fruit in certain pockets of our congregation. We're seeing God give us a holy imagination that's exposing our unholy insecurities. And that is a good thing. 
Our eyes are being drawn away from ourselves and onto what's possible with God. And so as we sit with God, we're cultivating an imagination that takes us outside of ourselves. We're cultivating an imagination that's asking us to entrust our wants to God, our prayers to God, our plans to God, all that we are, even amidst the discomfort. We're learning to die to self and enjoy the life-giving rhythms of walking with Jesus at his pace. That's what it means to walk with a holy imagination. Church, in my preparation for this sermon, I, I've been asking the Lord to just do two things. To show us where we're at and to show us where he, want, to show us where he wants us to be. I've asked God for his word to be a lamp to our feet and also a light to our path. I want to follow God into the possibility of awareness. Where my eyes are opened, where our eyes are opened, where our hearts are stirred, where our wills are resolved to take steps of faith that are fueled by God's power, not our proficiency. And so there's a way that we can invite you into that, actually, this week. We've carved out space as a church where we want to follow God into that possibility of awareness. This week as a church, we're going to posture ourselves to sit in God's presence and pray. We're going to be holding a week of prayer and fasting. It's going to go from the 13th to the 18th, Monday to Saturday. We're inviting you to join us in this fast. This is not compulsory. You're not obligated to do this, but we've set aside this time to seek God in prayer to wait on God for the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'd love for you to do that with us as the body of Christ, as the, the, the church that's gathered here. So if you're gonna be joining us in fasting, um, we're not asking you to fast every day, Monday to Saturday. All we're asking is if, if you're part of a community group, fast on the day in which your community group normally meets. My group's gonna start and meet on Tuesday, so we're gonna fast on Tuesday. And then when we come together for CG, it's a chance for us to talk and reflect on maybe words that, or thoughts that God brought to mind, words that he placed on our hearts, things that we, we see God doing now that our eyes are being opened a little bit. And then we're going to pray together, and then from there, break our fast by sharing a meal. We'd love for you guys to do that. And I do want to say that this is designed to be a food-oriented fast. But I understand that there may, that may not be an option for everyone due to medical or health concerns, and that's okay. If you are unable to fast, for whatever reason, we would still love for you to join us in prayers throughout the week. Because we believe that a week of prayer is one of the ways that we can right now join God in what he's already doing. It's a means by which we're asking God to open our eyes. Let me say this as the final, final thought. Uh, when I walked up on the stage, you, you saw a, a slide on the screen that said something. The subtitle attached was like giving our time and talent and treasure, something along those lines. But here's what I, I hope we see from God's word this morning. If our eyes are not open to who God is and what he's actively doing, then our time, talent, and treasures are going to be squandered. If our ears are not attuned and responsive to the voice of God who calls, then we are going to mismanage and mishandle our time, talent, and treasures. And lastly, our time, talent, and treasures are inadequate if we are reliant on the flesh, our own proficiency, rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I want to offer to God works that won't burn away like wood, hay, and stubble. I want to offer works that will last through the fire, stones, gems, precious metals. So church, I'm going to ask you with me this morning to, by faith, start to imagine what God is capable of when we abandon our preferences in favor of his presence and his power at work. God's first word for us today was to see. And his last word, as we join him in what he's already doing, is to go be imaginative and creative, has called people filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for the clarity, the power, the truth of your word. My God, give us faith like Bartimaeus, faith that comes to Jesus and asks for our sight to be restored. God, give us ears to hear your voice calling us onward and outward. Train our hearts to seek your presence more than our preferences. God, open our imaginations. We want to see what you're doing. We want to imagine what's possible. So please, Lord, do a work that awakens our hearts to worship in awe and wonder. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.